Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. I'm your social worker with a microphone this morning and uh, I guess all other Wednesday mornings. We have two guests coming up in this hour. Uh, one is a guest who's been on the show before, but she's done a lot more work, so we want to hear and be updated on what she is doing. Echook, um, and it's interesting, Echook Digital. This is, this, uh, if you go online, you can go to echookdigital.com or echook.com and find out about Tessa Smith McGovern. She is an award-winning short story author, uh, developed a very unique website called Echook Digital Publisher. That offers, that is a digital publisher which offers collections of linked short stories as digital chat books and apps and ebooks. So it all may sound very complicated, but we're going to find out from Tessa what he took is and uh, how we can use it as, uh, as consumers. Um, also, my second guest is Dr. Ned Holstein, MD, Board Chairman of the National Family Court Reform Organization, Fathers and Families. He's here to talk to us about, actually, it's the Arnold Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver case, uh, which um, brings up a, a lot of inconsistencies in, in family law. So um, my first guest is already here. Tessa Smith-McGovern, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you on this morning. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for inviting me again. It's great. We're going to have to kind of go back a little bit because not mm-hmm. everybody does know what eChook Digital is and how you developed it and why you developed it. So let's get some history on that. Okay. Um, eChook stands, the E is for digital, and Chook is a contraction of chapbook. Um, in the 16th century in England, peddlers used to take chapbooks around before um, books were widely available, but people could read. And they were short collections of popular stories and recipes and so forth. And I wanted to marry the old with the new. Um, so that's where the e-chook came from. Um, and basically what we published, you did a great job describing it because it's, it can seem a bit complicated at first blush, but um, it's basically short story collections on any device that you care to use. So we're on your iPhone, your iPad, your Android, um, Kindle, Nook, there's an online version. Um, The only thing we haven't got at the moment is a print version, um, and I am looking into um, print-on-demand, which is getting more and more economical. Um, So, you know, I think we may even do that too, so that there's a complete array of choices. 
So you're addressing, and I guess the, the statistic is the 70 million, and I'm saying 70 million active bloggers, tweeters, texters, Facebook addicts who journal daily about their daily lives. This is kind of the next step in the, in the, in the evolution of, of blogging. Yes, it, it definitely is because there was a time when bloggers were very excited to blog and go after the book deals, and that's not happening for a lot of bloggers, although it does happen for some. Um, but this is the next step. It's a, a story that takes about 10 minutes to read with a beginning, a middle, and an end, um, and people are just very interested in publishing their own work and seeing their own work out there. And what we've realized is that it's really not just the talented few who can Right, there's actually, you know, a huge amount of talented writers out there, and and now is with the digital revolution. Now is the time when people can be heard and they can get their stuff published and even sell it. So it gives everybody the opportunity to tell their story potentially, mm-hmm. because even before this, well, before Echook, and even before before that, people had to you had to go to a publisher. Very few people got their books published. It was the, because of the process that was involved, and this is. Yeah, so this gives everyone an opportunity. Some people would say, well, who, you know, maybe their stories aren't that interesting. Why do we have to hear everybody's story? Is it, you know, are we getting inundated? Is there too much stuff out there? Well, there's definitely a deluge of stuff out there, and one of the reasons that Echook is such a niche publisher is because people who want to read a compelling, well-written 10-minute story will know that they can come to Echook and that's what they'll get, and they can continue reading because the stories are linked, or they can stop after 10 minutes depending on the time that they've got but you know you raise an important question because it's not it's not going to be a solution to just write something and publish it i mean you do have to go through you need a writing group or some kind of workshop some kind of editing process these are the steps that differentiate a professional publisher from an amateur there's editing, there's design, there's marketing, um, you know, there are lots of different steps, and those steps cost money. They're expensive, and I mean, if you're in a writing group, then you can trade off services, you, you critique each other, which is a good thing, but there's always that extra professional edit, the line editing to make the work really good, and, and that's what we do. Um, Take us through the, uh, a, uh, take us through the process with an individual. Let's say I want to publish a book about my life in radio, and I go online and I look up eChook and eChook Digital Publishing, and I have a story uh, and a short story. It's my story. What do I do? You write it and you send it to me. It's that it's that simple. Um, we get quite a lot of work in different stages of completion. You know, sometimes you can see that the work needs a couple more. Um, revisions, and if it's something that I think would work on our for us in one of our apps or on our website, then I'll write back to the author and I'll. Say, in fact, I did it this morning to a story that I just I love the story. The characters were great, but the the tech, you know the prose needed tightening and some word choices were could have been could have been better. And and so we'll respond like that because I'm I'm not judgmental. You know, I'm a writer myself, and my first drafts are. You know they're not they're not great always. You I have to go back over them. I have to restructure them and make sure that they're going to really give a reader a great ten minute experience. And it's it can take five, six, ten drafts. Are there te- are there categories, Tessa, of stories that you will take? I mean, there are, are specific kinds of topics. I mean, are you limited to any? 
kind of topic, or you can whatever you want to write about, you can send it in to Ichuk. Well, we don't take anything with extreme profanity or, um, you know, gratuitous sex, that kind of thing. We're, we have a pretty much a, an age rating of four plus. But what we do look for is, I would say, narrator's voices, people who can be honest, who can be honest about how they felt about something. Um, you know, perhaps if it's a memoir, in retrospect, we get that wonderful 2020 hindsight. You know, that's always so instructive to a reader. It's it's so engaging to readers. Um, yeah, I think it's really a question of whatever makes the writer feel strongly is what they should be writing about because if they felt strongly about it, the chances are a reader will too. Well, you mentioned the fact that some of these stories come in and they're good stories, but the prose need prose needs fixing, but you like the characters and the example you gave. How much time would you spend um, revising or helping one to revise their story? Well, in the memoir app, for example, it varied widely. Um, We have some professional writers who've been in the New York Times, and we had a couple of pieces that came in that were all but completely clean, you know, the odd punctuation mark here or there. Um, And then we had one piece... um, by Carol Boas. I don't think she'll mind me singling her out. Um, she's entered various competitions and always had bylines and never got published. And that piece needed, I would say, um, I know she had it edited before it came to me, and then I went through it a couple of times and made some changes with her. And so maybe, you know, for me, I, I, it's not possible for me to spend that much time on all of them. Um, but you know, maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And certainly I'm happy to give where I enjoy a story. It's it's actually one of my greatest pleasures to write back to an author and let them know what stands out, what's really working, because that's been done to me. And unless somebody tells you what's working, sometimes you just don't realize because you're, it's you and your computer and you're stuck in the dark and you just don't realize. Yeah, you're isolated, so it's yeah. difficult. Yeah. Oh. But what about the fact, have you ever come across a story and, and said, oh, my God, this person is really somebody who is loaded with talent. You know, this is a, this is a really talented young, maybe a young writer. Um, and then what do you do about it? I go back and I tell them so. Um, sometimes I've had some great pieces in. I had one from a guy on the West Coast who was, um, it was about drugs and it was fairly graphic and it wasn't my cup of tea, but it was, the writing was fantastic and I just wrote back and I said, you know, this is really great. Send it out to other places because it's going to get published. And then actually this morning, um, the girl that I wrote back to today has, has natural talent. And so what, what she'll be working on, what, what we all have to work on, is points of craft. You know, you can learn these skills. You can learn what's a better word, what's more effective. You can learn how to make neat, quick transitions and how to write a hook. It's, it's really true that I would say, I don't know, 75% of writing is craft. And we actually have a newsletter that um, we send out a classic short story with a point of craft that I've isolated, and I'll, I'll identify it for the reader and show them how to use it in their own writing. So it's a point of craft illuminated by the classic author. Um, and, and a lot of this stuff can be learned. Have you been inundated since you started? When did you start the website? We started actually, um, we started promoting in November of last year, so November 2010, and I created the website um, actually when I was on holiday in the summer, 
And we have been inundated. Thousands of readers from 87 countries, um, hundreds of downloads. This Saturday and Sunday we had almost 500 downloads. Um, just, so this is the thing about the appetite for short stories. It is, it's huge. It really is. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm thinking about colleges and universities, too. Is this something that you have brought to colleges and universities or made professors of, of, of English or writing classes? Uh, not necessarily English because you're doing this around the country, but it, different, different uh, academic institutions around the world. Are they aware of, of Ichuk? We haven't reached out um, broadly. We have been in touch. I, I've studied at a number of uh, universities over the years, and Sarah Lawrence College is where I, I used to go most often. So we have um, some connections there, and, and some submissions have come from those resources. Very often, um, you know, when, uh, when you're younger, I'm, you know, almost 50, so I've been writing for really almost 20 years now. And you have to, sometimes you have to get through that period of writing when you're only obsessed, where you're obsessed with yourself and your emotions, you know, in order to craft a good story. Um, and sometimes younger writers can have, I hate to say this, I hope people aren't gnashing their teeth, but, um, you know, I mean, I, I did it myself. You almost have to write through your own issues sometimes to get to the point where you can then start to digest what do I need to learn to really create, to craft this great story. I think that's true of any creative artist, whether you're writing or you're on stage or you're in film or on the air. You know, you? I, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, that's a process that one has to go through. We're just going to take a short break. Tessa Smith-McGovern, who has developed eChook Digital. We have lots more to talk about because there's kind of a second stage to this whole thing, which she just has recently developed. So don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker, with the microphone on Voice America Variety. And World Talk Radio. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Do you know what a brat is? No, we're not talking about that kind of brat. BRAT stands for British Regimental Attached Traveler. It was adopted by American culture after World War II when American military began long-term assignments at U.S. military installations worldwide. Learn about the BRAT culture, the lost tribe, by tuning in to BRATCon Radio with host Dennis Campbell and associate producer and co-host Jerry Glass. There are almost 8 million living BRATs. Hear from them and from guests who studied or examined them. Tune in Thursdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Kors, Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, Voice America Variety, and World Talk Radio. Uh, my guest this morning is Tessa Smith-McGovern. If you're just joining us, I've been talking to her for uh, the first take of the show, and she, she has had developed this fascinating uh, website, uh, and it's it starting like last fall, but now it's really taken off. Um, eChook, eChook Digital, eChook Digital. If you have a story to tell, a short story to tell, you can... You can get online, you can go to eChook Digital, and you can submit your short story. And, uh, but now, Tessa, as you were saying, there are, there's kind of like a second stage to this. You know, people have been publishing their stories, or you've been publishing their stories online. But um, Memoir Volume 1, what's that all about? Well, uh, that was our first call for submissions. The theme was memoir, which is beautifully wide. You know, everyone has a, a story that that jumps out at them when they when they think about what they might sit down to write. Um, and so that was where we began, and we ended up with thirteen. Truly, I'm I'm was so thrilled with the the range of voices and the quality of the stories that we had. Um, and they, as I said, they range from professional writers with books out who've been in the New York Times, you know, multiple times, to brand-new authors and from this side of the pond and over in Britain. So that was really a treat. So you have some special writers. You mentioned them, some of the works that have appeared in the New York Times, literary, literary journalists, people who are well-known, um, and some who have actually won awards for fiction and nonfiction. So you've got the whole gamut from yeah. <laughs> from the, we, first, the person who's writing their first short story to just well-known, famous authors. Or uh, so, who are some of your favorites? Oh, that's a tricky one. No, <laughs> no, it truly is. There was there was not a story that I didn't love because I just you know wouldn't have put it in there otherwise. But each one has something a little different. Um, you know, one of them. Trisha Tierney's story, which is uh, the best laid plans, to me, it struck me as a really a universal a moment in a woman's life where you have a choice about how you respond to a difficult situation, and her choice was something that I think of sometimes. Um, it sort of it stayed with me, and I felt that that was that's a classic element when you read a story and you think about it afterwards. It, something prompts you to remember it. Um, and I, I think also one of the things I wanted to do was to have short stories, to have wonderful writing, but to be engaging. You know, so often, I love reading my literary magazines, but so often the stories are dry, they're dull, they're all just plain boring um, to me. So I really wanted to be very clear about the movement. You know, they're character-based stories, but they're, there's a beginning, middle, and end, and we need to get right into it quickly. And, you know, a short story, one of the simplest ways to describe it is a short story is a problem, and the short story is over when the problem is either solved or the character knows it's not going to be solved. And so right now you also have some uh, open calls for submissions for published or unpublished fiction, memoir, essays. These yep. are, what, what is that? You, you can submit your, your, any one of these, these publications and you can actually win a prize for it? You evaluate the story? Yep, we have two different contests um, and we have 
two other open submissions. So it's four in total. Two of them are free and there's no cash prize, and two of them that require an entry fee have the cash prize. Um, so the cash prize ones are, um, the first one is called Tis the Season, which is basically going to encompass winter, Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, um, Hanukkah, that period of time. Um, and then the second one is our Memoir Volume 2, and the prizes are up to a total of $550. Um, and then the other two that are free, which don't have payment attached to them, are um, we have a new feature coming up called Showcase, which is going to be on the home page, which because we get so many readers um, on our website, we wanted a way to highlight a short story and give a reader a complete short story to read. Um, and then the other one is called Dust Off Your Published Stories. It's, to, it's a tradition in publishing that short stories would get a second or a third or even a fourth life. They might be published in a magazine, and then they would get collected into an anthology and then possibly um, adapted as a play or some other use. Um, so that's what Dust Off Your Published Stories is. So um, lots of different ways to submit to us. Many different ways to submit. Now, what about listeners? You brought something up, or, or readers. I keep um, radio. I think of listeners. That, yes, yes, of course. Yeah, you know, have to translate to readers. But readers, do you get feedback, for, or do you welcome feedback from readers? Like, what do they like? How do they like it? This is a new website. Any kind of, do you have any kind of an interactive thing going on with your readers to find out uh, where they like, what they like, and where they like to see you go with the whole thing? Well, we'd, we'd love to have feedback from readers, but I have to say the the, the clearest way I understand how people are reading on the website is by looking at the Google Analytics. You know, everybody lands on the landing page and then 50% go to the submissions page and then the, the other 50% go to different features depending on who they are. We have um, today, for example, uh, there's um, a book is being launched called Tolstoy and the Purple Chair. And this is by a woman called Nina Sankovich, and we have a Q&A with her on our website. And it's just a fabulous book. Anybody who loves to read should really have a look at it. Um, so we have Q&A with authors. We have um, guest blogs where bloggers talk about their favorite short stories. We also have one thing that's one of my personal favorites, which is the superb sentences. Um, you can sign up for them and each time a blog, a sentence is blogged, it's just a beautiful sentence from various different authors and very often from female authors because I always find that classic female authors are not included in lists of classic writers where they, they really should be. So I want to bring that, um, I want to spotlight some of those writers also. So we want to spotlight the women's perspective. I'm all for that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and these sentences can also, you, there are ways, someone can't be taught how to develop their voice as a writer, but these superb sentences are a way of honing your voice and honing your ability to write effective prose. Tessa, any surprises for you after doing this? And, you know, now you have a, since the last time I talked to you, obviously, because it was new when you first launched the uh, the website, but uh, as things have gone, you know, you obviously had a vision and a plan and a way of implementing this whole thing. Any Anything that you that you had anticipated that, uh, or that you didn't anticipate in, in doing this project? Well, I, yes, it's a great question. I, I did not anticipate... Um, how many, how much 
material there is for people to read. You know, it's only really once I started looking at other people, what they're publishing, that I see it's such a torrent of information coming at us. Um, so that was... That was a surprise, and that's part of the digital revolution, which, you know, the, it's like the ground is shifting under your feet because every day there's a brand-new website, there's something new for either for readers or for writers. So, And some people are very inventive with the things they come up with, um, and, and it's interesting to see the publishers. You know, some of them are sort of plodding along in their old-fashioned way, and some of them are really embracing um, this new world that we have now. Yes. All the new medium for getting these stories out, but how yeah. do you, you know, that's my question, because I sometimes get stymied. How do you, stymied, how much, how, how do you know what to pick and choose? We only have so much time, and as you say, there is so much out there. I mean, it's, it's and so, what, how would you direct readers to pick uh, a good story to read, or a good website to go to, or is there any way to do that? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, for readers of good quality women's fiction or literary fiction, Ichuk will tell you um, what good stories to read. That's what we do. Um, there is, for example, um, Nina, whose book comes out today. She's a book reviewer, so you can go to her website, readalldayorg and you can find, if you're a woman, you can look from a woman's perspective and you can see, you get the sense of what someone likes. And if you, it's curated material. You know, if you like a couple of the things that you see on their website, then chances are you're probably going to like most of it. It's where it's big um, websites where there's no element of curating, no niche that you can find. That you, it's very tiring. So for readers, you know, we usually have our favorites. Like I love the New York Times book review. I don't love every review by any means. Um, but I can open it on the weekend, and I, I'll know that if there's a new collection of short stories, someone's going to write about it insightfully and, and in an entertaining way for me. So that's a good place to go. And, you know, otherwise, it's book groups. It's, um, there's a great place that I like called bookclubbuddy.com. Book Club that's out of Canada, and they do this thing called Getting to Know an Author where they just send two questions, and you can tell in two questions if you like the author or not. So and there are well, I like that there are places that you kind of well, obviously that you hone in and on, and you recommend those to readers. So we have a minute left. What do we want to lead, leave our listeners and our readers with? You know, I think the very best thing. I was just writing a, a draft post this morning about health in general and how we're all working too hard and we're not getting away from our computers. And 90 minutes is, you know, we've heard that's the optimum time for working. So my suggestion is at the end of 90 minutes, you know, set a clock or even if it's two hours, get up, take your tablet or your phone, go and read a short story. You know, you'll get a rest for your eyes. Ten minutes in a short story, you'll, you'll get away, a refreshing, a refreshing time away from your work. And then we can go back to it um, feeling better and, and having moved around a bit because sitting all the time isn't good for us either. Great, great advice. And thank you so much again for being on the show. Thank you so much, Catherine. I really appreciate it. Yes, exciting, exciting work. I love it. Uh, uh, Tessa Smith McGovern, and the website is eachook.com. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Coming up next is Ned Holstein, MD, board chairman of the National Family Court Reform Organization, Fathers and Families, and he's here to talk about the flaw 
in family law, and we became aware of this as a result of the Arnold Schwarzenegger-Maria Shriver breakup. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com, World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Entrepreneurial Insights is your weekly excursion into the world of business ownership. Presented by Sunbelt Business Brokers, the leading business brokerage and intermediary firm in the world, Entrepreneurial Insights will examine critical issues that impact both existing and prospective business owners. If you own or want to own a small business, listen for Entrepreneurial Insights with John Davies, Pino Boccinello, and Matt Ottaway. Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and we are back. You're listening to your social worker with a microphone, and it's voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Um, and joining me this morning is Dr. Ned Holstein, board chairman of the National Family Court Reform Organization, Fathers and Families. He, too, has been on the show before, so we're having returning guests this morning. A very interesting topic. Of course, as a social worker, this really uh, fascinates me. But uh, apparently the Arnold Schwarzenegger paternity case, which I've been talking about, and I'm not the only one, and Maria Shriver, has revealed a large flaw in family law. Uh, I guess, ironically, Arnold Schwarzenegger attempted to fix this while he was governor. Where the flaw, we're going to find out uh, what that is from Dr. Holstein. Um, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, and we're going to call you Ned. Catherine, <laughs> wonderful to be back, yeah. and uh, I've been called a lot worse things. Okay, good. Now, nice name. So, all right, so what's this all about? Because every uh, one thing I just have to say, and then I'm going to let you do all the talking, Ned, but, you know, everyone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, look what he did to Maria Shriver, and, you know, poor Maria, she's been duped, but apparently she may not be the only one who's been duped. Well, this is really not uh, about the relationships between the adults. This is about the kids. And the, the basic idea here is that um, under existing law, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, who had a child uh, with a married member of his staff, um, and did so apparently secretly, uh, that uh, because uh, that woman, the mother of that child, is, was married to somebody else, 
that he, even though he's the biological father of the child, he would have no legal obligations to that child. And um, the flip side of that coin is uh, that the um, uh, he would also have no parental rights related to that child uh, because she was married, and law says if she's married, that the child, uh, the, the legal father of the child is the the the, the is her husband. So, Ned, uh, let's just for people who don't realize this, this is the, these laws, these family laws, are, um, these are statutes, usually state by state, right? When it comes to, to family matters. It's usually a mixture of, of uh, statutes, that is, laws that are passed by the legislature, mixed in with decisions that are made by the higher courts in California or in whatever state you would be talking about. So let's say that in California, that's what we're talking about, in other states, the law is, as you stated it in giving the example of Arnold Schwarzenegger, whoever you're married to is presumed to be the father of your child, no matter how many affairs you're having or whatever you're doing, and that's the law. Correct. That is the law in just about every state. What, what state isn't it the law, do you know? I don't know of any state where it's not the law. Oh, okay, so it's, just, it's the law in every state. My question is, now that we've had this DNA testing for so long, how does that come into play? Because now you can really test who the... I mean, before you couldn't be sure of paternity, but now you can. I think that's the whole point uh, of, our, um, of our organization, which is we now have a modern, relatively inexpensive means of knowing who the father of any child is. And why don't we use it? We should use it in a restrained and judicious manner and under cer certain circumstances and not in other circumstances. But instead of having these archaic legal presumptions about who is the father of a child, why don't we find out who is the father of the child? And there are important benefits to the child uh, to have that determination done. Among others, as a physician, I can tell you that there are medical benefits and that the uh, Surgeon General's Office for some years now has been... Um, uh, uh, let me walk, walk back a step. The, the medical benefit to children is, in this age of increasingly sophisticated genetic medicine, it's important to children's health to know uh, who actually is their biological parent, uh, because that can affect both diagnostic measures, preventive measures, and treatment uh, of any conditions that they might develop, either as children or when they grow up as adults. Well, what about this? I mean, there can be a lot of different situations, though, with this, as I'm thinking about it. I mean, you can't force people, can you, to take a DNA test? Or DNA testing, I mean, I don't know, unless it's in a criminal case, but can you make somebody take a, a DNA test for paternity? Um, currently, the state can, in a, in a case where there's a child born out of wedlock, um, the state can uh, force a man to take a DNA test if mom says, you're the father of this child, and you need to pay child support. Uh, and he says, no, I'm not. The state can uh, force him to take a DNA test. Uh, that's the only circumstance I know of in which the state can force a DNA test. And we're not advocating a uh, forced DNA test, but we are saying that, uh, and also our position varies quite a bit on whether it is uh, child born in wedlock or child born out of wedlock. We think um, in children born out of wedlock, it should not be mandated, but there should be policies in place that strongly encourage and create incentives for there to be a DNA test in almost every case. Because currently we're getting the wrong dad in somewhere up to perhaps as high as 30% of kids born out of wedlock. 
uh, believe it or not, it, it is it is that high in some studies. So let's be clear about this particular case, because uh, the, the Schwarzenegger case of, of paternity. What if, and you're saying it's in the best interest of the child, for the child to know that Arnold Schwarzenegger, let's say, is this child's father. But what if the couple, what if his, the, his paramour um, went back with her husband and perhaps wanted to take care of this child and... Well, she she has the under current law. She has the complete right to do that uh, because uh, her husband, the husband of the mother, uh, is the legal father of that child. Even though we know that Schwarzenegger was the biological father, but legally, uh, the mother and her husband are the legal parents of that child, and and Schwarzenegger would have no rights to that child if he uh, if he wanted them. And so you're saying he should have rights, both rights. And responsibilities. Like we're not just. Are we talking about that too? I mean, that he, you know, in terms of having to pay child support because it is his child, and then also having the right to to visit with the child. And then, of course, you bring in, and I think you mentioned this. Uh, it's been mentioned in one of the articles um, that, that you've talked, that you've spoken about the fact that grandparents and aunts and uncles, and there's a whole slew of people that can be involved with a child. It's not just the biological father. Correct. I agree. Um, although the only little twist I'd put on it is, uh, why just visit with a child? Why shouldn't he be an equal parent to the mother uh, if if that's what he wanted? Uh, and, you know, share the, share the upbringing of the child. Well, do you think in most cases they... I mean, their, their, their relationship... Uh, I, I'm, I'm sorry, that's the wrong word. The situation of the mother and the situation of the father, that is to say Schwarzenegger, is exactly parallel. Both of them had an affair outside of marriage. A child resulted. Uh, if he wanted it to be that way, why shouldn't his uh, paternal rights be equal to her, to her maternal rights? And also, of course, why shouldn't he have the obligations and responsibilities that go with being a parent? So how do you how is this playing out and how is this I mean because I haven't with, with Arnold does he want to do that is that what the is Arnold he wants to as I understand it he is paying for her or has been I guess supporting her son and I I don't and I, I assume her as well his we only know pieces of what you're asking yeah. uh, there, you know as far as we we are told that yes he has been uh, providing financially for the child just as Jesse Jackson did with his child. Uh, who um, who moved from Chicago to California um, after the child was born? The mother took the child to California. Uh, yes, providing financially for the child, but as far as we can tell, both the mother and Schwarzenegger, the father, uh, it was they preferred to keep the whole matter secret. As far as we can tell, they they, they didn't um, they didn't. Schwarzenegger was not wanting to be identified as the father. Clearly, politically, that would have been a huge liability. And the mother, for whatever her own reasons were, apparently also didn't want him to be revealed as the father. So, um, uh, you know, that's uh, that's what they chose to do. But in a different situation in which the father uh, would want to be involved with the child, uh, the father ought to have that right. What about the, how does that affect, though, I mean, I'm trying to think of it from, let's say, his family or the wife that he's married to his, and the children that he has with that spouse. How? What kind of an effect would that have on them and his the children that he has uh, 
backfired in his marriage relationship could... Well, it wouldn't be a positive effect for sure, just as revealing her infidelity uh, in her marriage would not have a positive effect there either. And we're not advocating that mandatory revelation of anything, but what we are saying is that if a person uh, is the biological father of a child, we have a tool now that, used in the right circumstances, uh, can uh, show that to be the case and that the, both the obligations and rights should follow. And, yeah, and that's, I guess, Ned, well, do you think that most men, uh, you know, I don't know what this, what are, the, I mean, I don't know if you have the statistics, who have a child out of wedlock with their, with their, with a girlfriend, um, want people to know or want to be involved either way, necessarily be involved, at, you know, in their children's lives or to pay for, or have to be responsible for financially taking care of this child to their 18 years old? Well, I, I think that's reality, what you've said, but I think where this comes into play most importantly is uh, children born out of wedlock. In this case, both the mother and the father were married, except they were married to different people. Um, but where this really comes into play is in children born out of wedlock, and there you have a situation where uh, uh, mothers are saying, Joe is the dad, when actually Sam might be the dad, or Bill might be the dad. Mom chooses to say Joe is the dad, and Joe is signing paternity acknowledgement forms on her say-so. Nobody is trying to, uh, and with signing those forms, of course, he he does gain responsibilities, that is, child support. He may or may not gain any uh, paternal rights to the child. As often as not, he'll get no paternal rights, but he will get the child support bill. Uh, and no one is bothering to ask, do we have the right father here? Now, look at the flip side. When a mom goes into a hospital and gives birth, look at all the measures we take to make sure that that baby goes home with the right mom. We footprint the child. We uh, fingerprint the mom. We put uh, wristbands on mom. We have video cameras to make sure that the the child doesn't get mixed up and put in the wrong crib or with the wrong mom and so on. All of this is to make sure the child goes home with the wrong mom. What do we do to ensure that the child, quote, goes home, close quote, with the right dad. Nothing. And nothing whatsoever. We, we seem to not care at all about that. And we can find out the answer to that. We can find out the answer to that just with a simple blood test. Uh, not even a blood test, a, a cheek swab. I, I have, we have to take a short break, but I have a, a question about that. When we come back, we're talking to Dr. Ned Holstein, board chairman of the National Family Court Reform Organization. Fathers and families, don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Looking for exciting video content live and on demand? Visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
Why is talk of sex so taboo? We're always so worried about what others may think of us, and not talking about sex can actually affect our relationships negatively. Learn how to discuss sexual topics openly when you join licensed marriage and family therapist Moshumi Ghosh for Mo Knows Sex and Love. This will be an open forum where you can talk about all kinds of matters with relation to sex and love. Put the shame of past worries and thoughts behind you and tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And I'm talking to Dr. Ned Holstein, M.D., board chairman of the National Family Court Reform Organization, Fathers and Families. And we've been talking about the Arnold Schwarzenegger, Maria Shriver case. We've been talking about the paternity, I guess, this whole issue of paternity and who's the biological father and, and um, men and women who have children out of wedlock when either or both of them are married. What, what do you do? Who's responsible for the child and who has a relationship with, who's allowed a relationship with the child and who's responsible for, I guess, raising the child in terms of monetary, right? It's a very, as you and I were saying, it's a very complicated issue. So are we being clear? Let's break it down. What are, you know, specifically now, we've been talking about it. What, where are we? Okay. I think it's, it is complicated, but yeah. I think one way we can, we can clarify it is by distinguishing between children born out of wedlock and children born into marriage. When children are born out of wedlock, uh, there, there is a very strong push by the government to get somebody to sign a form saying, I'm the dad. And when they sign that form, they get a child support bill. And if they're lucky, they also get the right to be involved in the child's life. And sometimes they actually get that, and often they don't. But at least there is a child support bill, and someone has to pay for that child. But uh, in those cases... I don't. I think that there should not. Fathers and families believe that people should not be signing paternity acknowledgement forms without getting uh, informed consent that they have the right to do a DNA test to be sure that that child is actually theirs. And that should occur. Uh, there should be strong incentives towards getting that right, uh, getting the parentage right, getting the, the paternity right, right near the time of birth. Because if it's not right, then you do want to identify, well, who actually is the father. And give that person two things. First of all, the child support bill that rightfully is theirs. And secondly, the right to be a father to that child, as opposed to giving both of those things to the wrong man. So out of wedlock children, I think it's pretty, pretty clear-cut. Children born into a marriage, and there is some thought uh, that maybe that child uh, was fathered by somebody outside of that marriage, another man. That's a lot trickier, and I do not believe, and Fathers and Families do not, does not believe, that there should be any forced mandatory intrusion by the government to say, okay, every child we're going to, even in marriage, we're going to have a test to find out for sure who the dad is. I, I, don't, I think it's too intrusive, and it's too disruptive, and it can lead to too many 
uh, obviously, uh, emotional traumas for everybody involved. Yeah, I mean, you could have a woman pointing to several different families and, and saying, you know, either you know, three or four of these married men could be the, the uh, father of my child, and now he has to get a DNA test. I mean, you could break up a lot of families over that. So Absolutely. Uh, yeah. so, so we don't believe in that, but we do believe that if there is somebody who believes that they are the father of the child and has good reason to believe that, then they ought to have the right to determine whether that's true or not. And if it is true, using a DNA test, then they ought to have both parental rights and parental obligations. So you're saying this would be the, are we talking about best interest of the child? Absolutely, because first of all, um, a child on average, not in every case, but on average is going to do better uh, by having a, uh, a a, a, a correctly identified father who knows that they are really the biological father of that child. There's no doubt in their mind about it. And uh, all of history shows that men commit to their children, uh, are more likely to commit to their children under those circumstances. Number two, the medical issues are increasingly important in this age of genetic medicine. You need to know your true biological parentage. Um, well, how does that fit in terms of... Adoptions, like what about all the, the the children who are adopted who don't know their biological uh, parents? Um, Here's the difference. Uh, it's a good question, but there is an important difference. A child grows up, uh, a child of adoption grows up, and at a certain age they're told that they're an ado- adopted child. And so when the doctor, when they're now uh, 43 years old, uh, and they have a possible medical condition, and the doctor says, do you have a family history of this condition? That, that person says, I don't know because I don't really know who my biological parents were. In the situation we're talking about, uh, this person now says, oh, yeah, on my father's side of the family, you know, all of his sisters had breast cancer. And, um, and therefore, you know, the, the different measures have to be taken than if that were not true. The only problem is, he thinks that, I mean, she thinks that mistakenly. She thinks that her, her father's sisters all had breast cancer, except that wasn't her father. And she, she doesn't know that. So if the difference is between saying, I, I don't know who my parents were biologically, versus saying, um, versus having wrong information, thinking you know who your father was, uh, when actually that person was not your father. All right. So in other words, if you just simply don't have the information because you don't know your biological parents, that's one thing. Very different than thinking you have information that's inaccurate information and, and, and getting, I guess, making medical choices based on that. Correct. That's absolutely correct. And just in general, I mean, we want to have this conversation. These details are going to have to be worked out uh, as to just under what circumstance, particularly in the, in the case of marriage, a child born in marriage, you know, under what circumstances are we going to intrude into the privacy of the family or in what circumstances are we going to leave well enough alone? And society has to have that discussion. But the tool exists, and it's time to have that discussion, and nobody's talking about it, and the Schwarzenegger case shows that. Yeah, is nobody talking, are none of the state, because that, that's the first thing, actually, when that happened, uh, that I started, dis- I, I was discussing that with a friend of mine. I said, what about the paternity thing, you know, as I understand it, because my father was a lawyer, and he always used to talk about that, that, you know, that, and I wondered if it had changed, the fact that if you are, you know, where, if you, you're, the, if the baby's, if you're married, then whoever you're married to is the father of the child, no matter how many men you've been sleeping with outside of your marriage. And I wondered if that, I had that exact conversation. Well, apparently, I guess nothing, ha- you're saying that nothing has been resolved, even well, with this DNA testing over the past, what, 10 years? I don't know. 
Well, in the Schwarzenegger case, I mean, things appear to um, be working out, have appear to have worked out amicably between the parents. But just imagine, for instance, it, it is a fact that the woman with whom he had this baby was married and has since gotten divorced, just as, just as Schwarzenegger is getting divorced. Now, uh, the fact of the matter is that that man, if Schwarzenegger chose to deny his paternity or to just keep quiet about it, that man would have to pay all the child support for this child who is not his child. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, not, that's unjust. It shouldn't be that way. Now, there are complexities there, and we'd be the first to admit it. Suppose this child has grown up all the way to be 13 years old and thinks of that man as dad, and there's a close, loving bond there. Well, maybe you don't upset the apple cart. Uh, maybe you just, you know, keep secrets in the family closet, and the man pays his child support because he loves that child, and he's bonded to that child. He knows it's not his child, but he still loves the child. Uh, he knows that it's not his child biologically, and he still loves the child. So he says, I'll do this. I, I, I love this child. I don't mind paying the child support. Uh, in other cases, the man will say, you know, uh, she was unfaithful to me my, in the entire marriage. She mistreated me in a hundred different ways. I always thought this child was not my child. Uh, ever since we got divorced, she's never let me see this child. I've seen this child once in seven years. Why should I pay child support for this child? It isn't even my child. Those would be two totally different circumstances, and we've got to have a societal discussion about how do we use this new scientific tool, medical tool, the DNA test, in these varying human circumstances. So give us some suggestions. I mean, you're the physician, um, I mean, and, but representing fathers and families. Um, how would you, what, what do we do, for instance, in, uh, state by state? I think uh, in out-of-wedlock births, no question, in almost, in almost with rare exceptions, uh, uh, before a paternity acknowledgement form is signed, there should be a DNA test. Um, to see whether this person really is the dad. I think on the side of marriage, I think we just have to have, uh, I think, I think that at the, t I don't think while marriage persists that there should be DNA tests, but if there's a divorce, I think, and one of the parties wants the DNA test, I think they should be entitled to it. Right. Are we, is there any progress in, in terms of what you're saying? I mean, you're in, you're in Massachusetts, right? I mean, what's being done in Massachusetts? Anything? Uh, very little. Uh, most, uh, the only thing that's happening is in out-of-wedlock cases, there are some states that are saying, uh, yes, we'll, uh, they're doing it after the fact. They're saying, okay, down the line, uh, if, if you think it's not your child, you can get a, you can get a DNA test, and uh, we'll let you out of child support. We'll give you a time limit of th two years or three years or five years uh, if you get the DNA test within that period of time. That's what that's about the only thing that's happening in a, in some, in a few states. Um, but no one is saying, hey, look, why don't we get the paternity correct in the out-of-wedlock cases right from the beginning? Why don't we do it right at the time of birth? Why don't, you know, we're going to find out if this child has Tay-Sachs disease, and we're going to find out if this child has a genetic disease called PKU and a bunch of other things. And, by the way, why don't we also find out if, who's, who this child's father is? Yeah, I'm wondering why people, do, or what, what the, not people, but what the political, you know, why nothing is being done, or, you know, why we don't seem to want to move forward on this. Because paternity is not highly valued in our society, um, just, uh, and that can be shown a million ways, and people are feeling, uh, I mean, I already gave the example that, you know, we take all these measures to make sure that babies go home with the right mothers, and we do nothing to make sure that they're 
correct father has been identified. Um, maternity is valued. Paternity is not. And we're going to leave it at that And because we have 30 seconds left. But I think, I mean, that's the whole focus of, of, of your organization, too, making sure that uh, paternity is valued and, and making those kinds of changes, right? Um, if we want to keep what, – what do we do if we want more information about this? Go to – you have a website. We can continue. Fathers and families, all one word, all strung together, fathersandfamilies.org. Great. We'll have you on again. Thanks so much, Dr. Ned Holstein, MD, board chairman of the National Family Court Reform Organization, Fathers and Families, and you can go to fathersandfamilies.com. .org. 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 We'll continue with our dialogue. Thank you. You've been listening to the Catherine Zock Show, your social worker with a microphone on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.